we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yeah, we're back for another episode. Episode 397, closing in on that 400 number. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always... Coming in loud and clear from regional Queensland, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day Trevor, g'day Joe, g'day listeners. I hope everyone's doing well. And contrary to the background he's showing, Joe's not in Norfolk Island. He's actually in Peter Dutton's electorate, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, he's at home, which is fortunate, but it's Peter Dutton's electorate, which is the unfortunate part. Joe the tech guy. Evening all. Mm. In the chat room, if you're there, say hello. And already James and Tanya have said hello. Good on you guys. James, I, yes, I saw your message that your touch football refereeing is finished and you're now free to join us on Tuesday nights by the sounds of it. So that's good. Are you still sporting that fantastic moustache, James? I'm, I'm jealous. I wish I could grow a moustache like that. Hmm. Joe, have you ever grown a moustache or a beard? You don't want to see photos. <laughs> <laughs> Scott looks good with it. Scott looks good. Uh, Scott looks good with a bit of facial hair, I think. Yeah. yeah. Between the ginger and the white, it just really doesn't. Mm. Yeah, I can't pull it off either. So, right. I trim my beard once a week. Mm. Now, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about a little bit on Republican candidates, a bit on religious topics, a little bit on Labor and its role with, well, its abandonment of the, of the true working class. And we're going to talk about property and the historical reasons why property in Australia is as high as it is, which is a combination of interest rates and government policies and other things. So a bit of history there, which I'm looking forward to that part. Did you get to read that article that I sent on that one? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Did you agree mostly with it? Were we going to be arguing over much there? or I don't think we'll be arguing over that mm. much. But anyway, it's I was at a function... This was the Matildas game, the one where they won, like quarterfinal. And it was in a beautiful penthouse at, at Rainbow Beach. Magnificent, owned by a property developer friend of ours. Mm. And, um, and he and I got into a discussion on, the, on why property is the price that it is. And, um, and it, let me guess, there's not enough developable land... <laughs> It was a bit of that, yes, a bit of supply and demand was the Mm -hmm. developer's argument. And I said, I'm really, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I, actually, I can believe I'm doing this. I'm in an argument with a developer over claiming to know more about the price of property. So, so, So you asked him what percentage of land still remains to be developed in various large master builders developments across he, he, southeast Queensland? He did actually agree with that, that there was a lot right. of land banking. So he, he was he was actually, yeah, he, he did agree there was a number of different factors at play and maybe our prioritising of those was different, but at least it was more than just supply and demand. <clears throat> but anyway, I mean, it reminded me of the time on this podcast when I gave advice to women on how to breastfeed children. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just no... There's, <laughs> It's just it, no it's topic. E- it's easy. You just bare your chest and stick the baby. <laughs> no, on. it's not that right? easy. No, 
It's not. You've got to get a. F- oh, I won't go into it on the show. <laughs> I forgot you giving that yeah. advice. Yeah, that's right. I felt funny about it at the time, but I did it anyway. Same as with okay. arguing with the developer over, right. over land. Got to have an opinion on everything. And the chat room. Don's joined. So is Greg and John Diestrates. Very good. Say hello in there in the chat room. Just a few other little bits and pieces before we get into the main topics. I had my pathetic call out seeking new patrons last week. Guess what? Success. So Damien became a patron and also Paige and also an old patron, Yam Yam Blue, realised that his credit card had to be updated because his name wasn't called out. So, so that was good. There you go. I'll leave you alone for another four months. Six months. <laughs> four months. Thank you for those who did sign up. And if you can't do it because of financial reasons, totally understandable. All right. And also, I had in an earlier version of the epi- of the episode the audio from the Adelaide Mayor that didn't come through correctly and subsequent versions I got amended. But if you downloaded an early copy of the podcast, you might have got that audio on that, but it was fixed up. And the only other thing to say is in the show notes, there's a link to the newsletter. So as I go through articles during the week, I I give them a little tick and those articles appear in a newsletter that you get three times a week. If you're looking for something to read, if you want somebody to scour the internet, finding interesting stuff from the left and the right and the middle, then cost you nothing. Why don't you get that? Have a look in the show notes. Right. Headline of the week, I reckon, Scott, was from The Shovel, which was to do with the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the headline was, Wagner boss dies after his plane accidentally falls out of a window. Well, you know, I thought that the, you know, Biden said it beautifully. He said, well, he's not surprised that he's dead. Mm. You know, it's it's one of those things I, I don't think the leopard's ever going to change its spots. So, you know, he has he has poked the leper and got his hand bitten, so he's dead. You wouldn't have wanted to be his life insurer. You would have been demanding high premiums. He, mm, he was exactly. always skating on thin ice. Yeah, I mean, it's not just progression. Mm. There, there was quite a lot of senior management of Wagner in that plane. Mm. And so effectively the the company is leaderless at the moment mm. and hence Putin is putting a lot of pressure on the soldiers, for want of a better word, to sign oaths of loyalty to him. Mm. I'm sure he'll get those oaths. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In the chat room, Greg says, I was listening to that podcast today and it still wasn't working. That's because you probably downloaded an episode in the first 24 hours, Greg. So if you like delete it and then download it again, you'll pick up the fresh copy. I think it's probably your app downloaded it in the first 24 hours. Right. Just also on AUKUS, a little bit of a a review of that just briefly. There's a guy called Marcus Strom, was heavily involved with the Labor Party, super pissed with AUKUS. He started a group called Labor Against War and seeking people who are Labor Party members to join that and be active in the branches. John Simmons in the chat room, have you joined Labor Against War and why not if not? And apparently, according to the Financial Review, behind the scenes, a senior Albanese government cabinet minister speaking on the condition of anonymity 
likewise voiced strong concerns about the high risk of the submarines. The same minister also confirmed how completely rattled the Cabinet was by Keating's AUKUS critique. So that's according to the Financial Review, quoting an anonymous source. And what did Albanese say at that conference in Brisbane? He said AUKUS would, quote, reverberate throughout Australia, through our economy, across our advanced manufacturing and technology sectors and create 20,000 well-paid union jobs. Sounds like a Adani, really. Mm. Quote, these are the choices of a mature nation, a nation that understands that a bright future calls for more than just sunny optimism, he said. And the person who wrote this said in brackets, the sort of decisions you take after considering for 24 hours what the political implications will be if you don't endorse the other side's choice. That's true. That's part of the horrible story of AUKUS. These dickheads signed up to it with 24 hours consideration amongst a handful of them. <laughs> Still infuriating me, in case you didn't know. Yeah. Ah, Greg says no. It's a to turn down. Hmm. Okay, Greg in the chat room says, no, I was streaming it today in Google Podcasts. Maybe Google's caching it somehow, Greg. I really don't know what's going on there. Hmm. I did my best to fix it anyway. Republican candidates, we've got to start looking at those soonish. They're starting to have debates in America. And if you thought yeah. Donald Trump was a bad option, some of these yeah, candidates... There was someone there that was mentioned this morning on one of the things I was listening to, and they said he was a younger bloke, and they said that he's very much a Donald Trump lookalike, but he's younger, which was what was concerning them. Is this the Vivek Ramaswamy guy, the Indian uh, billionaire? I couldn't tell you. Mm. So they're just in a terrible state, the Republicans. Just I'll play a little bit of a clip here that I found. Ah. <sighs> Got now to do this. Add something here. Hang on, video. And this is from the recent candidates sort of debate that they had. Trump wasn't there because he just figured he didn't have to go. But he did an interview with Tucker Carlson. Yeah. He streamed it at exactly the same time. He gets all the publicity he needs. He doesn't have to go yeah. to these debates. But I'll play a little bit of of where they asked the candidates whether they were going to pledge for Trump. But we are going to take a brief moment and talk about the elephant not in the room. Former President Trump has been indicted in four different states on 91 counts. He will be processed tomorrow in Georgia at the Fulton County Jail for charges relating to the 2020 election loss. You all signed a pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Just hold on. So just be clear. Okay, six and a half out of eight raise their hands. Mm. You noticed that the, the one who definitely wasn't raising his hand? No, who was that? It was Mike Pence, was it? It was. Ah, right. There we uh, go. After, after Trump sent the lynch mob after him, 
There's no love lost there, I think. Yeah, it's still surprising. It would not have surprised me if Mike Plans put his hand up and anything's possible, isn't it? Yeah. In the chat room, Alison's there, which must mean that her mother, Bev, is also watching. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's where the Republicans are at. They are way too scared to announce that they are anti-Trump in any way. It's a sure way of not getting pre-selected. Sad world we're in. Yeah, I mean, the scared, scary thing is the number of Americans who actually believe that this is just a political ploy and that Biden has arranged for all this to happen mm. rather than investigators ga- gathering enough evidence to take to a grand jury of average citizens that were pulled out of their voting pool and believed that there was enough evidence to indict him. Mm. Mm. The guy who won the debate is a Vivek Ramaswamy, and I'm going to talk about him a bit later, if time permits. We've got enough material here for three and a half hours, I reckon. Just settle in. We mentioned previously about the Adelaide Council, and a public gallery was full again on Tuesday night in anticipation of another protest by a guy wanting to read his prayers aloud, but instead there was a debate and basically they came to a, a resolution that that they would they would start the meetings with what they called a non-denominational pledge and so it previously the prayer was <clears throat> almighty god we ask your blessing upon the works of the city of adelaide direct and prosper its deliberations to the advancement of your glory and the true welfare of the people of this city. Amen. And the new non-denominational pledge reads, May we in this meeting speak honestly, listen attentively, think clearly, and decide wisely for the good governance of the City of Adelaide and the well-being of those we serve. Hail Satan. <laughs> the second one is fantastic. Alison, in her Facebook Page said, I wish they wouldn't call the new pledge a non-denominational pledge because that infers it is a religious pledge of no particular Christian denomination. It is a non-religious pledge. Well spotted, Alison. And she said it again in the comments. Yeah, I, I just I understand what you're saying about that second one being a hell of a lot better than the first, but mm. it, it does There's nothing religious in it at like all. A prayer. I know, it yeah. does look and sound like a prayer, though. May we in this meeting speak honestly, listen attentively, think clearly and decide wisely for the good governance of the City of Adelaide and the well-being of those we serve? Well, they're sort of saying may we. They're asking for a higher power to do that, aren't they? No, they're no, asking people it's... present. Okay. Well, but also it's it's an aspiration, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. It's certainly a hell of a lot better than the actual prayer. Hmm. I think you're just influenced by its position at the beginning of something like where a prayer would be. Oh, probably. Gives, makes yeah. it think it's a bit prayerish. So, mm. so anyway, that's Adelaide City Council moving in a lovely secular direction. From Crikey, an article still on religion, the Greens and secular organisations have revived calls to remove the financial reporting exemptions given to thousands of religious charities suggesting that scrapping them would enhance public trust. You mean that Labor wasn't going to do that? Sounds well, like another reason to vote Green. It does, doesn't it? Yes. 
So it's the Greens calling for it and also yeah. the rationalists. So there's these things called BRCs, and I'll delete the bit that says what it is, basic religious charities. And they're the only category of charity exempt from reporting financial information under the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission. It it would be so much of an onus to put on, so so much of a a burden to put on them. Mm. Yes. So. Because their financial affairs are so much harder than, say, a footy club. Hmm. It's not like they've been doing anything dodgy in recent no. times that would make us feel suspicious no, about them. No. Yeah. So Green's justice spokesman, Senator David Shoebridge, said, why should a small charity helping the homeless or children be required to provide financial accountability for money received and spent? But big institutions like Hillsong and the Catholic Church can use the BRC to avoid this. Hmm. Well said. And the government doesn't even know how much money is being laundered through these institutions under the BRC exemption. So there we go. Meredith Doig was quoted in there as well. So they're just picking on the poor religious charities. They are. They mm. do so much for our, our nation. Mm. Uh, no, they, they don't. <laughs> but but you know, if if you were to introduce this tax reporting. Then they'd have to for they they'd be forced to shut down all of the good works that you know Hillsong does in the community. Yes, not It'd be nothing. It'd just be transparency and open exactly accountability. Clearly, exactly. clearly they're not doing the good things that they say they're doing because they would want people to see. It's like Donald Trump not showing his tax return. They've got Ooh. something to hide. If he was worth the amount of money he reckons he was, then he should have had no problem showing it. Mm. Guy Rundle is back at Crikey. He had a bit of a break. I think he was in trouble because he wrote something that didn't go down too well. He wrapped over the knuckles, but he's back writing about Labor, writing about AUKUS and the sub-steel and basically saying that there is no faction of any size that has adopted opposition to AUKUS. The anti-AUKUS forces within Labor do not even have control of a sub-faction. While 50 of 80, 50 of eight, there's 800 party branches and 50 of them have passed anti-AUKUS resolutions. And if you're looking for a revival of the genuine Labor left, it's slim pickings. He says that there's been a transformation in Labor and it's basically now just on the side of capital accumulation. We'll get into that in a moment. You oh, know- Game of Mates said that basically when they were given the charity, not the charities, the superannuation, Mm. now that the unions are far too busy sitting on the nest egg that is their superannuation Mm. to to want to shake up the economy. Yes. Managing that portfolio has taken Mm -hmm. precedence over getting better outcomes for workers in their wages. Mm. We'll get onto that in the next article in particular in detail. And what he's saying, this is Guy Rundle, is that now he referred me to this article, which which I'll read next, which is going to talk about how the old ideas of class were based around the income and the profession that you were in. And that really we now have to take into account asset ownership. And it doesn't really matter if you're 
a junior doctor, for example, or you are a plumber, do you own a house? Do you own property? Do you own investment properties? That's where the class distinction now is, is in asset ownership. And he's saying that labour has come down on the side of the asset holding class rather than the low income holding class because the asset holding class are in those suburban marginal electorates. And basically, Labor's abandoned the left in the true sense. And that was his little hot take on that. <clears throat> John's in the chat room. Die straights, John. John, still confident in the Labor Party? I mean, I know I said years ago, probably two years ago, no point joining a small party. You either have to be in the Liberals or the, or the Labor and work from within. But when you see what's happened with the Prime Minister is a member of the left and is kowtowing to right-wing Richard Miles just to maintain power, you have to really wonder whether anything can be done. Just Now I'm saying join the Greens. If you want to do something, I think it's my current position. What would I know? No, don't join the Greens, but you can vote for them for the next couple of terms, but then after that, return back to the Labor Party. Mm. When they've changed. Mm. Mm. Okay. Let's get on to this one, which is about, this was an academic article titled Class in the 21st Century, Asset Inflation and the New Logic of Inequality. And it was by some researchers out of the University of Sydney. So, and the thesis, or the abstract says, well, what it's saying essentially is that the increases in residential property prices in major cities around the world are far more significant than, pe than people's income. The actual massive increases in real estate valuations far outweigh people's income. And when we're talking about class, economic, social class, Piketty in his book about capital in the 21st century sort of highlighted wealth inequality but these authors of this article are saying you really not enough attention is paid to how property outweighs income in terms of the effect it's having on people's lives. And when we're thinking of class now, rather than saying what is your income and occupation, while that's relevant, the first question should be do you own your own home and do you own a few investment properties? Because that's probably more indicative of, of class at the moment because that's real wealth far in excess of wage sort of income. Anyway, just going on, it, in this article, they give a really good history of why property prices are what they are in Australia. And I wish I had this article with me when I was having my debate with my property developer friend in Rainbow Bay, Rainbow Beach. So, so they give an overview here. Before going into the reasons why it is the case, they just state the fact that looking at Sydney, and this is from data from 2018, 
Sydney ranked as the second most unaffordable city in the world after Hong Kong. So that's obviously looking at the price of property, median price, compared to median income of the inhabitants. So you might find more expensive property in other cities, but when you compare it to the income of the inhabitants, Sydney, 2018, second most unaffordable city in the world. So between 1999 and 2019, so that 20-year period, wages grew by an average of 3.1%, while property grew by an average of 7.55%. And if you look at any graphs, house prices in real terms, the graph spiralling upwards, weekly wages in real terms, a flat line. And looking at the history of how did we get here and Everybody needs to understand this to some extent. So like other Anglo-American economies, Australia moved towards a new accumulation regime as a trade-off between wages and asset inflation. So this in Australia occurred 10 years later than it did in the US and the UK. And our difference was that it was negotiated by the Labor Party in alliance with the trade unions. So in the UK, they had Thatcher mm-hmm. and Ronald Reagan. and Not in the UK. And in America, they had Ronald Reagan. So, you know, right-wing politicians, parties, bringing about neoliberal policies. And Australia was a bit behind the times, and it was a Labor Party that did it through Hawke and Keating. Yeah, Maggie sold off the public housing. Mm. And Hawke and Keating kicked off a fair bit. And so what we had was it was kind of the third way social democrats. They were kind of who was the who was the British PM, Labour PM that Margaret Thatcher said was a sign of her success. Blair. Blair. So Margaret Thatcher said Tony Blair was you know, a real sign of her success in that there was a Labor leader who followed her policies, if you like. So in Australia, we had Hawke and Keating, which were kind of a Tony Blair before Tony Blair. Yeah, Tony Tony Blair was the new Labor. Yes. And really he was after Hawke and Keating who were doing a similar thing but before him. Had you ever thought of it that way, Scott? Do you ever think of Hawke and Keating as Tony Blair, but just earlier? No, I never thought of him like that. Mm. It's one of those things, Blair was a product of his times that he had seen that Britain had changed under Thatcher. Mm. And as a result, he moved the Labor Party more to the right to make it more appealing to the more right-wing electorate over there. Yes. Now, you know, one of the things I definitely disagreed with Noam Chomsky on with with that decoding the gurus thing I was listening to on Friday was the argument where they said that what was that labor man that came up there and was the leader for two ter- for two terms before he lost Corbin him? Corbin yeah you know yeah Corbin was so far to the left that I just didn't think it was ever going to appear like he was talking about renationalizing steel production and all that type of thing mm-hmm you know, that was a ridiculous thing, but that's what he wanted to do. Mm. Yes. Him, yeah. Uh, maybe I think, though, that Hawke and Keating, 
if they were the new Tony Blair, if, if Blair was a response to to Thatcher, mm. Hawke and Keating were a response to Whitlam in that they yeah, didn't yeah, want to appear I, to be I Whitlam. Didn't, didn't, they didn't want to appear to be Whitlam. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He was seen as an economic nutter, yes. Yeah. So they were very concerned with appearing to be responsible people that big business could work with. And so, so they came up with the idea of superannuation, compulsory superannuation, and did a deal with the trade union movement that basically you won't get wage increases in your pocket now, but instead we'll, we'll have this compulsory superannuation. So you will benefit from being an asset owner and the growth in assets that will come as a result of lower wages. So that was really the deal that was done between the Labor government and the union movement was stop all these strikes, stop demanding all these wage increases. Instead, we'll give you compulsory superannuation and you'll get entry into the asset-owning class and enjoy the benefits of wealth from that class that you haven't had before. That was kind of the deal. Well, that's what they're saying in this article anyway by these academics. So it was an offer as a buy into the asset price appreciation that was expected as a result of wage moderation and financial liberalisation. So that was the deal that was offered and asset prices boomed because there was financial market deregulation in the 80s. So banks were competing for market share, offering lots of credit. So when you've got lots of credit and money flying around, prices go up. And the median share prices increased more spectacularly than house prices. So house prices during this period, a seven-year period between 1982 and 1989, House prices moved up by 133%. Share prices moved up by 219%. So that's what happens when you've got wages held down and interest rates low, lots of cheap money around, people buy stuff, price of stuff, assets goes up. So in 1991, the Reserve Bank decided to needed to soften the share price boom by raising interest rates. So when you have a boom in the asset class, increase the interest rates and you'll affect the demand. So, and that was, of course, what Keating referred to as the recession that we had to have. So at that point, instead of centralised wage bargaining that had been in place, there became enterprise wage bargaining. And this undermined the powers of trade unions and also the Reserve Bank, like other central banks, took on a new policy that they would do everything to sort of stop inflation and that was by raising interest rates and so they became more concerned with the consumer price index inflation rate rather than the asset boom that they had previously been concerned with. And 
So while not that long previously they'd raised interest rates to deal with the asset price boom, now they are raising interest rates to deal with the consumer price index and they're also pushing for wages to be lower to deal with inflation. So central banks moved into this phase of their primary role being let's crush inflation and we will do that by increasing unemployment and, and, and forcing down wages rather than dealing with overpriced assets. That's when all that sort of period came about. Then, so moving on from there, unfortunately, Hawke and Keating also dismantled Whitlam's public housing legacy and Keating introduced or reintroduced negative gearing. So that provided a formidable tax incentive for housing investment, for people to buy houses as an investment. Keating's responsible for that. And Howard then, when he got into power, he was very attuned to housing as a financial asset and, say, and as a generator of capital gains. And let me just try and get to the right part here. So we had cheap consumer credit rising so people could borrow more and we had negative gearing that had been started by Keating. And then the big one was that Howard introduced a 50% discount on capital gains. And uh, that-, that was in response to the capital gains tax used to be calculated by working out what the after CPI growth of the tax was, growth of the asset was. Mm. So you used to you used to index your cost base up by the CPI. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently that was far too complicated. So what they did was they said, well, we're just going to give you a 50% discount on the profit. Yes. So you just take away, you just take away the, you just take, you just take the actual cost away from what you sold it and divide it by two mm-hmm. to work out what you actually have to put in your income tax return. And the boomers who all own property went, that's yeah, a great idea. Are, We're going to vote for that. Very well. They're yeah. doing very well that. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. I couldn't understand why the hell they're doing that because it's it wasn't that complicated. I used to do them all the time. Yeah, it wasn't complicated. No. Easy formula to do. So so you've got negative gearing introduced by Keating, and that's unusual in the world in that you could offset against income from other sources. So in most countries, you're only allowed to to, do, to offset the loss from, say, your investment property against income from another investment. You can't offset it from labour income, from your wage. So it's really unusual in Australia's sort of tax arrangements with negative gearing. It's extremely generous to allow people to to take the losses from their investment properties and apply that against the income from their labour, from their wage. So that negative gearing plus the 50% discount on capital gains plus cheap money is, is really ultimately the reason we're in the predicament we're in. Mm. We've got tax laws other countries just don't have that mm. incentivise people and now the prices have just reached a point where unless you're in the market, 
it's almost impossible to get in. And this, according to these writers of this article, means a different form of social class categorisation based on property ownership or your likelihood of inheriting property from the generation, you know, your parents or your grandparents or something like that That's as a, as a key mechanism. So, so, yeah, that was, in a nutshell, the trade-off of wages for super, the negative gearing introduced by Keating, the 50% discount introduced by Howard, the fact that that negative gearing crosses all forms of income and add that to a lot of cheap money, low interest, and a boomer population that voted for all these things because it was worth, you know, good for them. That's how we ended up where we are today, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. And it's really hard to fix without making a lot of See, people angry. This is the problem with democracy. Mm. People vote in short-term interests. Mm. No, it's one of those things I could understand if you if you wanted to roll back the capital gains and that sort of thing, I could appreciate that and just take it back to the way it used to be calculated. That wouldn't worry me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it really worry me if I lost something on my you know, negative gearing? Well, it wouldn't really worry me. It's just one of those things I'd have to put up with. It's, it's but just, I'm quite a reasonable person, though. So. It's, just, <laughs> it's just really tough now that people have borrowed a lot of money yeah. to buy an overpriced asset. extended themselves. Absolutely. Yes. And, and th- that, is the, that is the whole point that I was trying to make with Liam on the, the night that we were talking. You do not want to engineer a price reduction in the, in the properties because if property prices go down, people are going to be paying for thin air, which is going to upset them. It's all going, also going to, well, you know, the banks could actually call in their mortgages and all that sort of stuff, which would result in a hell of a lot of problems. So, mm. you know, with a shit ton of property going on the market, which would drive the price down, which wouldn't be good. But from the memory, the, the Greens with the change of one of those policies, I think it was the capital gains. Yeah, I know. The, yeah. the, the, the capital gains was something like, I you know, Negative gearing was on new investments, not yes, existing investments. Correct, and the, I think the capital gains exemption was going to be phased out over over five or over ten, five years, or ten or years. Yeah, I mean that's probably the best you can do. You couldn't, you can't do any more than that because no, if you if you did it straight away, you'd end up mm. fucking the whole economy up. Mm. But if you did it, if you phased it in and that sort of thing, then that's not going to be as big a deal. Mm. I just remember in Jersey where y- your negative gearing was interest, but only on your first property, yes. only in your residential property. Right. Th- there was zero incentive to invest because mm. house prices were stupid anyway. Mm-hmm. More rock, mm. large amounts of money floating around. Mm. Well, let's talk about another favourite topic and bring this in China. So Never heard of them. <laughs> You might be hearing, dear listener, you might be seeing stuff in the media about how the Chinese property market is in trouble and it's all going to collapse and it's a house of cards and it's going to be a disaster and, you know, valuations have dropped 10, 15, 20% or something like that. But here's some interesting stuff that I came across. So this is from Forbes magazine in China. 90% of families in the country own their homes. 
90%. Is this own outright or have mortgages? I'll get to that. Right. In that, I don't know, giving China one of the highest home ownership rates in the world, what's more is that 80% of these homes are owned outright without any mortgage or other liens. So 90% own their own home, and of those, 80% are outright with no mortgage. So they don't care whether the house prices go up or down. Exactly. Exactly. If the market goes down 20%, well, if you're not planning on selling, it doesn't matter. And if you are selling and buying in the same market, it doesn't matter either. Mm-hmm. So, so there could be a 20% crash in China, and given that sort of statistic, it's not going to be a major problem in any event. So, And a lot of those people have been sitting on quite large capital gains as well in China where property prices have gone up in some of the larger cities like Shanghai. So, hey, if you bought something for 300000 10 years ago and now it's $1.5 million, you don't care if it drops 200 you know, this sort of thing that's happening. So, exactly. It's, yeah. it's only if you've overextended on your mortgage. Yeah. But so that's a really interesting statistic that you just don't hear at all. And of course, Chinese households have enormous savings, 10 times what the USA per household saving is. Now, what might happen is people who are rich traders in property, they might lose money. And now this is from a 2016 article from Forbes, which is to decrease the amount of volatility in China's often hot property market, there are very strict rules as to how much money people can borrow from the bank for purchasing real estate although this slightly varies by city and wavers in response to current economic conditions. For their first home, a buyer must lay down a 30% payment. For their second, it's 60%. And for any property beyond this, financing is not available. Holy shit. So for people to buy homes in this country, they need to step up to the table with a large amount of cash in hand. In fact, 15% 15% of all residential property in China is paid for in full up front. So that's why there's no Trump Tower in China. Yeah, that would be one of the reasons why. So now, another way that Chinese home buyers are able to afford their down payments is via the country's housing provident fund, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. 30% down payment for your first home, 60% for your second, no financing available after that. Imagine if we had a similar law here, what housing prices would be without all those yeah, investments. You, be able to, yeah. you need to, to leverage your assets to, hmm. to, to accumulate huge amounts of profit. Yeah. Interesting. So, how, how am I going to get rich quick if I don't leverage my assets? Yeah. This is the problem, is property, homes, dwellings should not be considered financial investments it should mm-hmm. be like food and clothing it's, this is the problem we're in really difficult to escape after 50 years of of the policies that we've just run through so yeah china incredible rate of home ownership still not the top of the world the top is laos then romania kazakhstan slovakia hungary croatia cuba north macedonia vietnam and then china followed by Serbia, Lithuania, Russia, Singapore, Poland, India, Myanmar, Nepal, Bulgaria, Indonesia, Taiwan. On so either, either Asian or communist, former communist countries. Mm. Yeah, it's good. that was just what I was looking at there. I thought to myself, these are all former Soviet countries. Mm. You know, imagine 
like people feel precarious when they don't own a home, when they're renting well, or when they've got a large mortgage. Do, do they, though? I because Australians um, are. Australians, yes, but I'm thinking about France where I think large numbers of people rent for life. Germany is the same. Yeah, because um, they've got a rent. Well, yes. okay, because they've got a systems in place that know that they know they're secure as a renter as well. Correct. Yes, correct. So, so there isn't the love of being a property owner. Yes. Australia, the United States, countries like that are where people would feel precarious and uneasy where, you know, it comes to housing if they've got a huge mortgage mm-hmm. and things are going bad. So, hmm. So there we go. That's a rundown of property and a comparison of what's happened in China. John says today, I learned today that China has the second lowest fertility rate in the world, South Korea the lowest. They're in trouble. Could be. Could be a real problem. And Don feels precarious. His rent just went from two seventy five to three twenty per week. Yelch. Yeah, I was talking to a customer in Yapoon. He said he lives in a townhouse, and I think he owns it. His next door neighbour was saying that theirs has just gone from two hundred odd a week to four hundred. Hmm. New Zealand is heading down our track when it comes to foreign policy. USA and China. So New Zealand's latest defence assessment is called the Defence Policy and Strategy Statement 2023. And the Defence Minister, Andrew Little, was talking about it. And guess what? They're worried about China. (laughs) It's New Zealand. New Zealand's worried about China. Yeah, I know that, and that was a real surprise to me because it wasn't all that long ago that they were lecturing us about what we said to them and that type of thing, and I just thought to myself, well, that's the kettle calling the pot black. The Defence Minister, sorry. Only five of them and a sheep if they get invaded, so. Yeah. This Defence Minister said, if, for example, conflict does break out in the South China Sea, where $20 worth of our exports goes through every year, we have a stake and, a, and the nature of our relationships with our partners means we may be called on to play a role should conflict break out, which is a bizarre statement because 70% of, of their exports through the South China Sea go to China. Mm-hmm. So they're going to go to war with China to make their trade with China. That's it. If Rob Sitch and the crew from Utopia didn't do that skit all those years ago, they'd have to do one now, but they did it. It's like none of these guys have watched it. Who, you know, as if China is it's, – it's all just the US putting pressure because the US feels under pressure. It's now putting pressure on its allies like Australia and New Zealand to, to pony up as our – as their – little deputies in this part of the world. And it looks like New Zealand's as stupid as we are. Or head in that direction. Hmm. Maybe we could just give the US Thursday Island. They could build a base there and then leave us alone. Hmm. Also, the spooks in New Zealand, what else did they say here? 
There's a security threat environment 2023 report by their security intelligence service in New Zealand, which says, there are a small number of states who conduct foreign interference in New Zealand, but their ability to cause harm is significant. This report highlights the activities of three states in particular. No points for guessing the first one is the People's Republic of China. Dear listener, just pause for a moment. Who are the other two? The answer is the Islamic Republic of Iran and Russia. I mean, Iran are busy conducting foreign interference in New Zealand. I think the Kiwis have got an overinflated opinion of their own self-worth. Yeah. There we go. Remember we did that story about the, uh, the guy who in New Zealand took the Reuters press sort of report. Yeah, and he and massaged it to make it look more positive. Pasted it into a Radio New Zealand sort of website and added a few words and mm. there was a big hullabaloo about that. He's since sort of resigned. It was like a journalist with 19 years' experience, the guy. So the original Reuters version was... The conflict in eastern Ukraine began in 2014 after a pro-Russian president was toppled in Ukraine's Madan revolution and Russia annexed Crimea with Russian-backed separatists, forces fighting Ukraine's armed forces. And he changed it to read, the conflict in Ukraine began in 2014 after a pro-Russian elected government was toppled during Ukraine's violent Madan colour revolution, Russia annexed Crimea, and he's added all this bit, after a referendum as the new pro-Western government suppressed ethnic Russians in eastern and southern Ukraine, sending in its armed forces to the Donbass. Like everything he said it was correct, but it just wasn't. Well, yeah, just... It was violent. The, the Russian snipers that were sent over to shoot the protesters yeah. were, were very violent. Yeah, it was violent. He didn't say who was the, who was committing the violence. This is just, you know, a public broadcaster is sanitising the version of events that the New Zealand public's hearing to be in line with what's acceptable. Hmm. How are we going for time? Eight twenty-five. I think I will skip that and that. You want a little bit of? Uh, let's just lighten things up a bit. <laughs> Vivek, Ramas- Vivek Ramaswamy. So, you know, when I played the the, Republican candidate. Yes. So, when I played that clip at the beginning, which was of the debate for the Republicans, and they were asked who, whether they would support Donald Trump if he's convicted and subsequently endorsed as the party's candidate, six and a half out of eight said yes. Was it seven and a half? Anyway, six and a half. Yeah. In that debate, 28% 28% of respondents said that Ramaswamy performed the best. And so he's like a billionaire of some sort. And so he's got enough money to fund his own candidacy. And yeah, he's worth $950 million. And yeah, Donald Trump allegedly was rich enough, but he didn't. Y- yes. He, he let everyone else fund it. Yeah, mm. I think this guy is rich enough. He like genuinely is. So just you, you're going to hear more of this guy, so you're probably good to say that you heard about him first here on the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. 
let's see what he says about, about Pence and what Pence did as to whether that was a good idea or not. Let me bring up a couple of questions you didn't get a chance to answer at the debate. Most of the candidates on stage Wednesday night said Mike sure. Pence did the right thing on January 6th. Do you agree? I would have done it very differently. I think that there was a historic opportunity that he missed to reunite this country in that window. What I would have said is this is a moment for a true national consensus where there's two elements of what's required for a functioning democracy in America. One is secure elections, and the second is a peaceful transfer of power. When those things come into conflict, that's an opportunity for heroism. Here's what I would have said. We need single-day voting on Election Day. We need paper ballots, and we need government-issued ID matching the voter file. And if we achieve that, then we have achieved victory, and we should not have any further complaint about election integrity. So what would, so what I would, would have you have done through the Senate? So what would you have done as, with Mike Pence? You would have so not capacity, certified the election? So in, in my capacity as president of the Senate, I would have led through that level of reform, then on that condition certified the election results, served it up to the president, yeah. President Trump, then to sign that into law, and on January 7th declared the re-election campaign pursuant to a free and fair election. I think that was a missed opportunity, but that's the kind right. of spirit we're going to need to unite this country rather right. than sweeping those concerns under the rug. So ignore the results of the election. Yeah, exactly. Pass through some laws and then have another go if you didn't win the first time round. Yeah. And we then with a Congress that's not in session and do yes. it all in 24 hours. And and, and and cut off half of the voters that would have voted a Democrat. Mm. Completely. By, by demanding government-issued voter ID. Yeah. Man's a lunatic. Completely nuts. Completely nuts that you could just do all these things. But he's... It's one of these cases where if you speak with authority and confidence and just keep talking, people go, your average they American is going to listen to that and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that would have been good if I do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, hell of an idiot. Might vote for that guy. He seems to know what he's talking about. It, the guy's an idiot. I mean, I remember months and months ago I was listening to something or other and they said that in the election history was that they'd been that was in George W. Bush's time they'd found a they'd found a record number of false votes. There was fourteen of them. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, out of a, a country of three hundred odd million. And most of those were probably Republicans as well. Yeah, exactly. So that the the I can't remember who it was, some Republican set up a voter fraud line. You know, send in your tips for any voter fraud. And they have apparently found and prosecuted cases of voter fraud. And they were all for Republican candidates. Mm. Right. Mm. It was people who'd voted twice or voted in an area they weren't entitled to vote or whatever it was. But mm. John in the chat room says, Pep podcast beat you to the punch. Damn it. I didn't get you the Ramaswamy first, but I'll give you a bit more of him because. Do you have to? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Just give you a little bit more of this guy. And you've also suggested that Vladimir Putin be allowed to keep parts of Ukraine as part of a as far, part of a way to solve that conflict. What if he wants parts of Poland? You leave next? out the what most important part of that deal. More of Ukraine next. <laughs> you, you aren't you letting some of these authoritarian leaders of the off? The what hook? actually advances? Far from it. I think that the Biden administration is so stubbornly attached to the idea of getting Xi Jinping to drop Vladimir Putin. What I think we need to be doing is get Vladimir Putin to drop Xi Jinping. Just like Nixon went to China in 1972, I think Putin is like the new Mao. I will visit Moscow 
and I will pull Russia out of its military alliance with China. The Russia-China military alliance is the single greatest military threat that we face today. Hypersonic missile capabilities, nuclear capabilities in Russia, far ahead of us or China. A naval capacity in China ahead of ours, combined with an economy that we depend on for our modern way of life. Those two nations are in a military alliance with one another, and nobody in either political party is talking about it. Worst of all, our engagement in Ukraine is further driving Russia into China's arms. So my foreign policy centers on weakening that alliance. That you advances let, American you interests. Would let Putin have that parts is how of we actually secure peace. But you would let Putin I have would parts of Ukraine. Freeze the current lines. I would, I would freeze the current lines of control, and that would leave parts of the Donbas region with Russia. I would also further make a commitment that NATO will not admit Ukraine to NATO. But there are even greater wins that I will that get from the United like a win States for in return. Putin. The top of the list. No, what we, our goal should not be for Putin to lose. Our goal should be for America to win. That's what we have forgotten in this country is that. Driving Russia into the ground is not a U.S. strategic goal. There we go. But Putin win. He's right on some things. His reasoning so that we could then drag Putin away from an alliance with China so, is completely so, nuts, as if so Putin the, is going to do that. The hypersonic, exactly. hypersonic missiles, from what I'm hearing, means absolutely nothing. They're, they're worth nothing. Mm. Yeah, it's a shiny toy. It's a tick in the box, but strategically, there is no great benefit of them. Their their navy is the world class. Mm. I mean, the the Ukrainians who, with a cobbled together bunch of missiles, managed to sink the flagship of the fucking Black Sea Fleet. <laughs> but, but the idea, <laughs> let's let's you know, we'll let Putin win, and then we'll do some nice things, and then he'll break up his alliance with. China. Russia, China, yeah, what yeah, exactly. That was he's he's on crowd clown cuckoo land, you know. Yeah, this is the caliber of Republican candidate that is around. Mm. If, well, of course, Donald Trump. If if Donald Trump had been president, the war wouldn't have broken out because he would have seen eye to eye with Putin, yes. despite Putin being his puppet master. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you want some more of the Ramaswamy policies, according to Wikipedia? <clears throat> So so he rallies behind Trump. He promises to pardon Trump if he's elected president. He's also promised to pardon. He can't. Doesn't matter what he can and can't do, Joe. <laughs> this is an American billionaire. He can do whatever he wants. Oh, okay. If he's president. He's promised to pardon Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. And he's cons- mm-hmm. he said he might consider Robert F. Kennedy as his running mate. Democratic. Jesus Christ. Robert F. Kennedy. He argues. So, in other words, they're both loony teens. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. Yep. He opposes abortion, teaming up murder, supports state level six week abortion bans with exceptions for rape, incest, and danger to the woman's life. He's called the LGBTQ movement a cult. And he puts up with same sex marriage because it's a settled precedent. Quick, we need to rescue Scott. He's been indoctrinated into a cult. That's it. <laughs> He's going to fire 75% of all federal employees, dismantle the civil service protections. He's going to abolish the Department of Education, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Internal Revenue Service. Of course he is, because they're, they're taking far too much tax from him. 
He calls the Food and Drug Administration corrupt and vowed to expose and ultimately gut the FDA. And he asserts that the president has the unilateral power to abolish agencies by executive order. He will raise the standard voting age to 25. And because young people vote left. Mm. He said he would allow citizens between 18 and 24 to vote only if they are enlisted in the military, work as first responders, or pass a civics test required for naturalisation. He's going to uh, only if he passes the the naturalisation test first himself. Yes, he's pledged to use the military to annihilate Mexico's drug cartels. Uh, oh, I did hear about that. Yes. And then mixed up with this, he's in favour of legalising marijuana and is in support of an inheritance tax. And he suggested that federal agents were involved in the September 11 attacks and he's expressed support for Taiwanese independence and floated the idea of putting a gun in every Taiwanese household to deter an invasion by China. Yeah, because that'll really work. (laughs) Uh, This missile's coming and I'll just pull out my M16. Yeah, he's a fucking idiot. He says he's not a climate denier. He denies the scientific consensus on climate change. And he said the climate change agenda is a hoax. And he Because it interferes with his profits. Yes. And he said people should be proud of the, to live a high-carbon lifestyle. What a collection of policies. And that was the do, winner of the Republican do, debate. Do, do, do you think he could possibly fly his private jet over Russian airspace? <laughs> <laughs> Could he stand close to an open window in Russia? Yeah, maybe. Perhaps. Yeah. So there we go. That is the level of politics in America. So while I might rail against Albanese and his lack of action here in Australia, we have not yet got to that stage. But, but hang us- on, these, these are right-wingers. Yeah. You, you, yeah you're comparing our left well, winger with the, the crazy right. True, you're right. I mean, if you look at them, Peter Dutton and... And the nutters in that Liberal Party and the National uh-huh. Party, Barnaby uh-huh. Joyce, we're not that far off. Please you're explain. Right. Yes, you're right. We're not, not that far off. Well, dear listener, if you're not already depressed, maybe that will <laughs> do the trick. Yeah. I think you're deliberately trying to depress everyone. Yeah. So, all right, we will be back next week with another episode. Talk to you then. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night. Absolutely. I know Trev. No, he he, big Trev is as honest and straight as he is big. I haven't considered the grains. Well I've lost my faith, not my fucking mind. We're living in hard times. Much sadness in our day. Look out for one another.